I want to begin this morning just by recognizing that we are living in discouraging times. And just, it's discouraging. It's discouraging that 20 years after the September 11th attacks in our country, after 20 years of having military in Afghanistan, that terrorists are in control of Afghanistan again. That's discouraging, isn't it? It's discouraging that after it seemed like we turned the corner on COVID several months ago, now our hospitals are filled back up with sick patients again, that people are dying again from COVID, that, that it's, it's just not going away. And all that comes with it is discouraging too. It's discouraging that we live in a society that increasingly calls evil good and calls good evil. And that this society not only says that, but they, they want to indoctrinate us in that, indoctrinate our children in those things according to whatever it's deemed right in its own eyes. And all these things kind of just, just pile up, right? And, and, and we start hearing them all at once, and, and we can find ourselves very discouraged, find ourselves just hopeless, find ourselves maybe even just cynical about it all, just, just the brokenness of our world. And I know that many of you have been in the news this week on looking at articles and seeing these things that's been on your minds. That's why I wanted to start here because I know that we've been, we've been reading these things and, and thinking about these things. It's, this is our world right now. It's our country right now. But this morning, church, I want to remind you that these things will not go on forever. It's not endless. History does not just go on from bad to worse forever and ever. Let's just remember this morning uh, a biblical worldview of history. The Bible teaches us that God has a plan for history. The Bible teaches us that history had a beginning and history will have an end and that God is working all things according to the counsel of his will as he guides history to the purpose for which he began history. All of these things are being guided by him in his providence towards a final point of fulfillment. And they will all come to a head, and history will have a, a, a day that comes. We don't know which day it's going to be, but an actual real day in history will come that the Bible calls the day of the Lord, or the day of judgment. And when that day comes, Jesus will return. God will judge all the wickedness of our world from all time. And God will heal all the brokenness of our world for all time. And God's kingdom of righteousness will be established forever and ever. This is, this is the hope of the Bible. This is the hope of Scripture, that that day is coming. It's not just endless. We're not just going to be in this forever. The day of judgment is coming. It will be a day of salvation for God's people. But as we look ahead of that day, we need to understand that we too will appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Every single person who has ever lived will give an account to God for their life. This day of judgment is not just for those that we perceive as wicked. It is for every person who has ever lived. And on that day, every person either will be given entrance into the eternal kingdom of God, or they will be cast away into what the Bible calls the lake of fire, the place of God's holy wrath towards sin. Every person who has ever lived will either enter into eternal life or be cast away into eternal damnation. This is what the Bible teaches. This is what the scripture says. We have a creator 
We are accountable to him. One day we will give an account and either enter into eternal life or eternal judgment. And this leads us to this morning's passage where Jesus teaches something that is absolutely stunning. You may be taken aback a little bit by the way that I'm going to say this, but I believe that it's faithful to the teaching that we're going to look at this morning. Here's what Jesus teaches in this passage today. What happens to you on the day of judgment is directly related to how you respond to the Sermon on the Mount. What happens to you on the day of judgment is directly related to how you respond to the Sermon on the Mount. Whether you enter into eternal life or are cast into eternal judgment entirely relates to how you respond to the words of Christ in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. You can open your Bibles there, Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7, we're in a series through the Gospel of Matthew called Following the Fulfillment. This morning we're finishing the section known as the Sermon on the Mount. We've walked slowly through this incredible sermon that Jesus preached to his disciples for the last five months. It has been rich and challenging and convicting, and today we reach Jesus' concluding words. Every sermon should have a good conclusion, and Jesus' does. Matthew 7, verses 13 through 27. This is the final words of the Sermon on the Mount. Listen to what Jesus says. Matthew 7, verses 13 through 27 is our passage this morning. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. In these final words to the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus gives us four contrasts, and each of these contrasts reinforces one question. How will you respond to the Sermon on the Mount? How will you respond to what you've just heard? Four illustrations, four pictures, four contrasts that drive home that question. What will you do with these words 
of mine. Four contrasts that call us to respond to the Sermon on the Mount. See the first contrast in verses 13 and 14. Two ways. Two ways. Let's read these verses again. Verses 13 and 14. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. So this first contrast actually uh, includes two contrasts built into the one. Two gates and two ways. But we're taking them together because they are inseparable things. The gates and the ways. They're looking at two ways here. But let's look specifically at the gates first. Jesus says there is a wide gate and there's a narrow gate. And let's just get the picture in our minds first. Okay? In Jesus' day, gates were built into the walls of cities. That, that, that's the kind of gates we're talking about. You entered an ancient city through the gate. So the idea here is of gaining entrance into a city. That's the picture it should be in our minds. And he talks about a wide gate. So when you picture a wide gate, what do you see? You picture a gate that provides easy access, right? There's a gate that many people are coming in and they're going out as they please. It's a gate that you just walk right through and you're in. It, it, that the whole point is, is the ease of access through the wide gate, a narrow gate, on the other hand, gives a different picture. Cities, in ancient cities, would have narrow gates, uh, l- little doorways placed in discrete locations in the city walls that only the citizens knew about so that they could get in. It would, it would have been known only to those who belonged to the city. It would have been guarded. And to get in, you would need to find the gate, and you need to be granted entry. That's what Jesus is describing, this narrow gate, this, this gate that is... Um, not widely used, this gate that's not easy to access. The wide gate's well known, well used, provides easy access in the city, but the narrow gate is known only to those who belong to the city. It's in a discreet location, and you have to be granted access to get through that gate. So these are the two gates that people would have been hearing and thinking of when Jesus said there's a narrow gate and a wide gate. Now let's think about the two ways. Okay, two ways. There's an easy way and there's a hard way. An easy path and a hard path. A few weeks ago, we were at Nakalua Falls, my family, and uh, we wanted to go down into the gorge to, to where the waterfall was, and we decided to go on the trails that are outside of the park. And so at first, we were on this great trail, because it's wide, and it's smooth, and it's easy, and there's benches to rest on, and there's ramps and, and rails to hold on to. It's just this, it's nice, easy, beautiful trail, but it's not getting us down to the gorge. And we're trying to figure out, looking at maps, where are we, and, and, and how do we get there? And we realize there's, there's a gap, just a little gap in the woods there. And there's a sign that's pointing, like, go this way. And, and, and we realize we, that, that's the way. And so, so this way, very different. It, it's steep at times. It's filled with rocks, a lot of, a lot of climbing. It's, 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 it's hot summer day. It's, it's a difficult path, especially when you are holding a two-year-old the entire time who cannot do it. It's a hard path. It, it, it was exhausting. Well, I thought of that this week when I read about the easy way and the hard way. The easy path is wide and well used and enjoyable to travel on. There's, there's nothing difficult about it. But the hard path is not that way. The hard path is narrow. It's rocky. It's overgrown. It, it takes great effort, great care, great exertion presents great difficulty to travel on, and Jesus points to that path. Now, when Alan asked this question, how do the gates relate to the ways? So we've got two gates, we've got two ways, so what, how do these fit together? 
Now first, notice that the narrow gate is connected to the hard way, and the wide gate is connected to the easy way. So, 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 so you, you can't flip those around. The narrow gate's not connected to the wide way, and the, and the wide gate's not connected to the hard way. So, so the, each of them has a, a parallel. In terms of the metaphor, now, normally what you would picture, think there's, again, get into the, the minds of ancient people who would have been hearing this, what they would picture is a, a road or a way that leads to a gate at a city. Say, so, so I'm going to take this path to the city where there's going to be a gate and I'll get into the city. That's what they would be picturing. But Jesus does something odd and surprising in these verses in the way he describes it. Yes, notice this, according to Jesus, the gate comes first. The gate comes first. And, and I believe this is significant to grasp if we're going to understand this contrast rightly. Just think about what Jesus is teaching here. The two ways represent two different ways of living your life. And the two gates represent entrance into two different cities. Based on what he says, we'll call it the city of life and the city of destruction. Eternal life with God or eternal life apart from God. Now think with me, if Jesus didn't flip this metaphor, then we might think he's saying this. If you live this way, then you'll receive entrance into this city. And if you live this way, you'll receive entrance into this city. Because that's the way it normally works. You, you, you travel the path to get to the gate that gets you into the city. But no, Jesus flips the metaphor. He, he puts the gate at the beginning of the road. And I think this would have come off as odd and surprising to his listeners. And, and, and it would, would have caused reflection. Why is the gate first? Why does the gate come first? He's teaching that we receive entrance first, and then we walk the way that's in front of us until we reach our destination. And this is so significant because Jesus is teaching us that entrance into God's kingdom is not fundamentally based on how we live. Entrance into the kingdom of God is not fundamentally based on how we walk, how we live, what path we take. Rather, we receive entrance into God's kingdom first, and then we walk the path that Jesus calls us until we reach our destination. And this is exactly how John Bunyan understood it in his book, The Pilgrim's Progress. Pilgrim gets to the gate, he gets to the narrow gate, and he, and he knocks, and, is, and he enters in, and his journey's just beginning. He, he, he's received through the narrow gate, and then he has a long, hard, difficult road ahead until he reaches the celestial city. Entrance comes first, and this is so significant. This is the logic of the gospel, is that entrance comes first. So how do we enter the narrow gate? How do we receive that entrance into the kingdom of God? According to the Sermon on the Mount, we receive that entrance by coming to the gate with absolutely nothing and asking for entrance through it. We come to the gate with nothing and we ask for entrance. Remember how the Sermon on the Mount began. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Those who come with nothing, poor spirit, spiritual beggars come and they receive the kingdom of heaven. And remember what we looked at a few weeks ago in chapter 7. Everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds. To him who knocks, the door will be opened. You see, we enter the narrow gate by coming as spiritual beggars who have no merit before God. We come repenting of our sins and relying wholly on the grace of God that comes through Jesus' death and resurrection. And we come asking for an entrance we haven't earned and we don't deserve. And Jesus says, and theirs is the kingdom of heaven. God opens the door to those who humble themselves and rely on his grace alone. 
That's how we enter the near gate, through repentance and faith in Jesus, reliance on Jesus. And I've got nothing, but I'm asking you, open the door. I'm knocking, open the door. I don't have anything to give. I have not earned it. Please open the door and let me in. And theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And that narrow gate, that entrance into the kingdom, then opens to a hard way. That's just the beginning. Now there's a hard way in front of you. What is the hard way? It's the way of true righteousness with all its repercussions. Just as the first beatitude tells us about the narrow gate, blessed are those who are poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, the last beatitude tells us about the hard way. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The hard way is the way of righteousness and all the suffering it brings. The hard way is the way of following Jesus in true and inward righteousness and all the trials, all the persecution, all the suffering, all the difficulty that that way brings. This is the path that we walk to the city of life. And it's tempting to look at the wide gate that everyone else is going through and to look at the easy way which seems so much more attractive to us. It doesn't require anything of us. It's the easier path. But Jesus warns us that the way is easy that leads to destruction. Saying it might be a wide gate and it might be an easy way, but do you know where it's headed? It's headed to destruction. It leads to the city of destruction. It leads to the lake of fire. It leads to the wrath of God. But the narrow gate and the hard way lead to eternal life in the kingdom of God. Eternal life in the presence of God. So church, I want to ask you a few questions this morning. First, which gate did you go through? Which gate did you go through? There are many ways to get through the wide gate. It's a wide gate, right? So it's easy to get in, and and there's lots of ways to get in, lots of points of entry, but they all amount to some form of, I'm going through. I'm going through. I'm going to get myself through there. Some form of self-trust, some form of self-reliance, some form of self-effort, some form of self-wisdom. That's how you get through the wide gate. But the only way through the narrow gate is through repentance and reliance on God's grace in Jesus Christ. Jesus says, enter by the narrow gate. Have you done that? Have you come as a spiritual beggar? Have you come saying, I've got no righteousness. I've got nothing to say that I've earned this. I come with nothing and I'm asking, I'm asking you to open the door. Relying on your grace that comes through Jesus and his death for my sins and his resurrection. And I'm pleading for your grace. Have you done that? Enter by the narrow gate. Another question, which way are you on? Which way are you on? And listen, because the gates are connected to the ways, your answer to this question cannot be disconnected from your answer to the last question. If you've truly entered the narrow gate, you will find yourself on the hard way. If you've gone through the wide gate, you will find yourself on the easy way. So let me ask, are you living life according to God's standard of true righteousness or according to your own standard? Do you you submit to the authority of his words or do you just do what you want to do and what your sinful desires lead you to do? And corresponding to that, are you experiencing difficulties and sufferings in your life on account of that righteousness, on account of living for Christ? Or do you always take the easier path? Do you always take the easier path? The way is hard that leads to life. Which gate did you enter? Which path are you on? 
enter by the narrow gate and walk the hard way, church. And I, I can't move on from this point this morning without recommending to you that you read The Pilgrim's Progress by John Bunyan. It, this is the best-selling book ever published outside of the Bible itself. And there's a reason for that, because it amazingly and powerfully and beautifully illustrates this passage, the hard way that leads to life. And I brought two copies that we have at home. One is an updated edition that looks like this, just want you to see it. Looks like this, and this is a, a full updated edition. And then there's this little pilgrim's big journey, which is just wonderful. Our children love it, and it gives so many opportunities to teach them about the, what, what it means to follow Christ. And so I just would commend these to you and to your families. It will be a blessing to you. The Pilgrim's Progress. Uh, I'll put these down here later, and you can look at them if you want. But but just again, commend to you. Enter the narrow gate. Take the hard path. This is the way that leads to life. This is the first contrast Jesus gives. Now we have three more we're going to work through today, all right? The second one is two trees, two trees. And look at verse 15. This section opens with a warning. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Now when I first read this verse this week, it seemed a little bit out of place. Like why in the middle of this conclusion, the Sermon on the Mount, does Jesus give a warning about false prophets? But when we think about it, church, it makes perfect sense because we aren't just travelers on the way. We are all followers on the way. We're not just traveling on our own. We are following someone. We are all sheep, and we are all following someone. You are following someone in your life. And Jesus is saying here, as you travel on the way, beware of following a false prophet who's leading you the wrong way. Jesus describes false prophets as wolves in sheep's clothing. They disguise themselves as belonging to the people of God, but in reality their intention is to devour and destroy the people of God. Well, this raises the question, if they're disguised in sheep's clothing, then how are we to recognize them? And here's the answer Jesus gives in verse 16. This begins the second contrast he makes. He says, you will recognize them by their fruits. By their fruits. And here Jesus uses a very basic principle from nature and he applies it to our spiritual lives. In nature, the fruit of a plant reveals the kind of plant it is. And spiritually, someone's life reveals the kind of person they are. Jesus says, thorn bushes don't bear grapes. Thistles don't bear figs. In the same way, wolves don't bear spiritual fruit. You'll recognize them by their fruits. Similarly, Jesus goes on and talks about healthy trees and bad trees, and he says, healthy trees bear good fruit, diseased trees bear bad fruit. My healthy tree is not going to bear bad fruit, and my diseased tree is not going to bear bad fruit. And this, this whole idea of a diseased tree, it pictures sin as a disease inside of us, something that has corrupted all of us, and there's no way for someone who, is, who has the disease of sin in their heart to have true spiritual fruit in their life. It's not possible. It's not any more possible than a diseased tree bearing healthy fruit. He says you'll recognize them by their fruits. Now, now we need to make an important observation here that sheep's clothing is not the same thing as spiritual fruit. See, see th th they are giving the impression that they're sheep, right? How are they doing that? Well, they're disguising themselves using maybe Christian terminology, doing a lot of external deeds, being really involved in ministry. There are ways that they can disguise themselves initially as sheep, but that's not the same thing as fruit. Fruit can't be faked. They cannot fake love 
joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control any more than the disease tree can bear good fruit. And so Jesus says, look at their lives. Look at their fruit. This is how you'll recognize them. And why is it so important to recognize them? And again, why is Jesus saying this in this conclusion to the sermon? Well, look at verse 19. He says, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Again, we see a picture here of final judgment. False prophets will face the condemnation of God and the punishment of hell. And if you're following them, so will you. If they're the ones you're following, so will you. That's why he says, beware of false prophets. Well, who should we follow instead? The implication is follow those who are bearing good fruit. Follow those those who are living out the righteousness of the Sermon on the Mount. I want to make another connection from earlier in the sermon. Matthew 5, verse 19, Jesus said this, Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Church, follow those who do and teach the righteousness of the Sermon on the Mount. They are the ones that are on the hard path that is leading to life. Don't just follow the ones who teach it. Follow the ones who do it and teach it. Follow the ones who are living it out. Follow the ones who are bearing spiritual fruit. This is safe for you to know I'm following someone who is on the right path. So I want to ask you, church, who are you following? Who are you following? And I want to give a, a caution this morning to not identify as followers of pastoral personalities or theological personalities. Listen, we live in a day of social media followers, right? Who do you follow? Listen, I've benefited greatly from men like John Piper, Kevin DeYoung, Tim Keller, David Platt, Mark Dever. Very influential in my, in my life, my ministry, but you know what? I can't see their fruit. I have no idea what their lives are like. I can't examine their lives. I can benefit from their ministries, but they're not the ones I should be following. I don't know them. I can't know them. And Jesus says, look at their fruits. So benefit from them. Yes, I'm not saying don't read them, but benefit from them. But who are you following? You need to follow those you know. You need to follow shepherds that you can look at their lives and see they're doing it. They're living it out. I see them growing. I see them progressing. I see them living out and bearing healthy fruit, everything that they're saying. This is one reason we commend church membership and one reason we have a plurality of elders is because we need to follow shepherds that we can see and know. And even as elders, we need to follow one another. I need to follow you, Ben. I need to follow you, Joey. Because I'm a sheep too. Who am I following? I'm following you. As we follow Christ. Follow those whose lives you can see and whose fruit you can examine. And if you don't see fruit, then run away. And find someone else to follow. Because you need to follow those who bear good fruit. Follow those who you can, of whom you can definitively say they do and teach the righteousness of Christ. Follow them on the hard path that leads to life. So two ways, two trees. Third, we see two claims. Two claims. Verses 21 through 23. Many have said that these are some of the most frightening verses in Scripture. 
Let's read them. Verses 20 to 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. These verses depict people who profess to follow Christ. People who identify as his disciples. People who truly believe in their heart that they will be saved on the day of judgment. And on that day, they're actually condemned. And these verses should give pause to everyone who identifies as a Christian to take a close look at themselves. If you say, Lord, Lord, to Jesus, this passage would say, make sure you're not deceiving yourself. Jesus begins by looking at the profession, Lord, Lord, This is a profession of discipleship and of worship. Jesus is the one we follow, and Jesus is the God we worship. And Jesus said, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, on that day. But of those many, Jesus says, only some will enter the kingdom of heaven. You see, professing Christ as Lord is not enough. Professing to be his disciple is not enough. Professing to worship him is not enough. Jesus says that only those who do the will of his Father in heaven will enter the kingdom of heaven. And at this point, Jesus vividly describes the interaction between him and those who merely profess to follow him. And and, and you know what they do? They object. On that day, they object. They say, Lord, what about all the mighty things that we did in your name? We, 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 We have prophesied in your name. We've cast out demons in your name. We've done many mighty works in your name. And you know what? Jesus doesn't deny it. He doesn't deny that they did these things in his name. What he denies is that those things were the fruit of an authentic relationship with him. He says, I never knew you. I never knew you. You did those things, but it wasn't rooted in an actual relationship of faith with me. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. And again, we saw it with the wolves in sheep's clothing. We see it here. External religious deeds are not the same thing as true spiritual fruit. The will of God the Father is not primarily to do great things for him or to do external things for him, but to walk according to who he is. To be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. To walk according to his character. That's the will of our Father in heaven. And who are those who live this way? Who lives that way are those who actually know Christ by faith. Those who are in an authentic, personal relationship with him. Those who have truly repented and trusted in him. These are the ones who do the Father's will. And these are the ones who will enter into the kingdom of heaven on the day of judgment. They know Christ by faith. And because they know him, they are being transformed into the very same character of Christ. I want to ask you this morning, what will you claim on Judgment Day? What will you claim on that day? If your claim on the Day of Judgment is, Lord, Lord, look at what I did for you, then you will be one who hears the words, depart from me, you worker of lawlessness. And church, this gets at the very heart of the horror of hell. Bible's full of images, destruction, lake of fire, weeping, gnashing of teeth. These are are terrible images, but the very heart of the horror of hell 
is being cast away from the presence of Christ forever and ever. Depart from me. I pray that no one here ever hears those words from the lips of Christ. And that God has you here this morning so you can hear this message and never hear those words. Don't claim, Lord, look at me. Look at what I did. Didn't I do all these things? You'll hear, depart from me. Well, what is the claim of those who do receive entrance into the kingdom of God? It's interesting, isn't it, that we don't actually see, hear anything. There's no claim here. And I think that's significant because we have nothing to claim. We have nothing to claim. There's nothing we can say. There's nothing we can point to and say, look at me, look what I did. We have no claim on the kingdom of God. But if we did say something, there's a hymn that I think puts it very well. The hymn's called Not in Me. I want to read it this morning. No list of sins I have not done. No list of virtues I pursue. No list of those I am not like can earn myself a place with you. O God, be merciful to me. I am a sinner through and through. My only hope of righteousness is not in me, but only you. No humble dress, no fervent prayer, no lifted hands, no tearful song, no recitation of the truth can justify a single wrong. My righteousness is Jesus' life. My debt was paid by Jesus' death. My weary load was borne by him, and he alone can give me rest. No separation from the world, no work I do, no gift I give can cleanse my conscience or cleanse my hands. I cannot cause my soul to live, but Jesus died and rose again. The power of death is overthrown. My God is merciful to me and merciful in Christ alone. My righteousness is Jesus' life. My debt was paid by Jesus' death. My weary load was borne by him, and he alone can give me rest. That's the claim of those who will enter into the kingdom of heaven. Jesus' righteousness is everything to me. On that day, will you claim your own external righteousness, or will you claim the righteousness of Christ, first counted to you, and then worked through you, all by his cross and his grace and his spirit? What will you claim on that day? The only claim that we can make is the righteousness of Christ, given to us and worked in us. Finally, church, we have two builders. Two builders verses 24 and 20 through 27. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. This final contrast is fairly familiar to us. If you've grown up in church, you know the song. Two builders building a house. One's wise on the rock. One is foolish on the sand. One, one of the builders is wise, and he chooses to build his house on this firm foundation, on the rock. And the other builder's foolish, and he chooses to build his house on shifting sand. Now, on a nice day, that's not a problem. And one guy might actually have a better view on the sand. Maybe he's looking out, out of the beach at the ocean. 
but the weather turns for the worse. A great storm comes, floodwaters rise, winds lash against both houses, and what happens? Well, the wise man is safe and secure in his house, but the foolish man's house has completely fallen in over him, and it's totally leveled. It's a picture of absolute destruction. Now, what does it mean? What is, what is Jesus getting at here? Look, Jesus says that the wise man represents the one who hears these words of mine and does them. And the foolish man represents the one who hears these words of mine and does not do them. These words of mine. What words? The, the, the Sermon on the Mount, right? These words that I've just given to you is what I'm talking about. This is what Jesus says. Whoever hears these words of mine, and he's saying, what will you do with it now that you've heard it? You can either say, this is a good foundation. I, I, I'm going to build here. I'm going, I'm going to use this as the foundation for my life. Or you, can, or you can say, that's not a good foundation. I'm going to go over here. This looks better to me. I'm going to build somewhere else. You can either accept or reject the Sermon on the Mount. Now, life brings us many storms, but the storm depicted in these verses looms larger than all the storms of life. This storm represents, again, that final day of judgment that is coming. This storm represents that day. And here's what Jesus is saying. If you build here, if you receive and respond to these words, then you will withstand the storm of God's judgment on that day. But if you hear this and you reject it and you turn to the wisdom of this world and you build your life somewhere else, then when that storm of God's judgment comes and it arrives, your house will fall. It's just like I said at the beginning. Jesus says that what happens to you on the day of judgment is directly related to how you respond to these words of the Sermon on the Mount. Will you receive them? Will you do them? Or will you reject them and go somewhere else? I want to ask you, where are you building your life? Are you rejecting the words of Christ and living your life according to the wisdom of this world? Which he calls foolish. Jesus warns you, your house is being built on sand and it will not survive the day of judgment. I want to appeal to you this morning to build your life on the firm foundation of Christ's words. Enter by the narrow gate of repentance and faith in Jesus. Walk the hard path that leads to life. Follow those who are bearing true spiritual fruit. Obey the will of God the Father. Hear and do the Sermon on the Mount. And on that day, you will enter into the kingdom of God forever and ever. Now the last thing I would want today is for anyone to misunderstand Jesus' teaching here and think I need to live a better life in order to be saved from God's judgment. That's not the message of the Sermon on the Mount. It begins with poor in spirit, right? But we need to, we need to remember something here, church. It's, it's hard because we've been in this for so long. It almost felt like it's its own series. But this is part of a larger book. This is part of a story. This is part of a narrative. Jesus didn't just come to preach righteousness to us. Jesus came to live out this righteousness for us. And then Jesus came to die for unrighteous sinners like you and me. That's what happens in the Gospel of Matthew. He comes and he preaches the truth. And then he lives out the truth. And then he dies for sinners like you and me. And then he rises again. 
so that we can be saved. The, the only ones that can truly do what Jesus says are those who have been transformed by what Jesus did. The only ones who can truly live out the Sermon on the Mount are the ones who first come to the cross of Christ, repent of their sins, trust in him alone for grace and forgiveness. And he will save you by his grace and he will transform you by his grace so that you can do these words of his. Call out to him this morning. I urge you to call out to Jesus this morning. Judgment is coming on every one of us, and only those who enter by the narrow gate walk the hard path, bear spiritual fruit, do the will of God, who who apply these words will be saved, and we can only do it through Jesus. Call out to him for forgiveness and for salvation and for that inward transformation that only he can give.